Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. The greatest single story in Taiwan's history is arguably the siege of Fort Zelandia in modern-day Tainan. That's when the Dutch very bravely resisted the forces of Zhen Zhenggong, a Ming loyalist and sea warlord slash pirate, better known as uh, Kashinga. It was a dramatic clash of East and West and also a big part of a cataclysmic change of dynasties from the Ming to the Qing in China. In the wake of such epic stories, what follows can often be overlooked or even forgotten. So Fort Zelandia falls in early 1662. The exact date is February 1st, 1662. And Kashinga dies in June of that same year. It's kind of convenient to end the story there, skip over the next two decades of the kingdom of Dongning and continue Taiwan's story with the start of the Qing period. I know I do it frequently when I'm trying to shorten Taiwanese history, you know? Yeah, but it's a fascinating period. Amazing stories and events. At Camphor Press, we get a lot of manuscripts, but at the top of my Christmas wish list would be a novel set in that time. <laughs> I can just see it. Dear Santa, I would like a manuscript on the Dongning Kingdom. Exactly. Okay, so today our story centers on Kashinga's eldest son, Zhen Jing. I may not be pronouncing that exactly correctly, but this is Kashinga's son, okay, Zhen Jing, who inherited the Zheng family dynasty, which had been started by Kashinga's father, Zheng Zilong. Through those generations, this trading network was a huge scale operation and also hugely important. This Zheng trading empire centered on Fujian just across the Taiwan Strait. Yes, built on a long tradition, centuries of maritime trade. But in the 1600s especially, it was in the right place at the right time. You've got these two great powers, Tokugawa Japan and Ming China, both with restrictive foreign trade policies, China's demand for silver and the worldwide demand for Chinese luxuries. And the Zheng traders are also well-placed to get spices and other goods from Southeast Asia. Right. Japan and China, huge populations, wealthy countries, uh, at least at the top, uh, right? And they're not really set up very well to handle trade. So you've got a vacuum. And when you've got a vacuum, that demand will be filled by others outside government institutions. The Zheng regime was immensely rich. And in the last decade of Kashinga's rule, for example, they were doing more than twice the amount of trade in East Asia than the Dutch East India Company were doing. But the Manchu conquest of China, the fall of the Ming and the ascent of the Qing is taking its toll. And Kershinga's sudden death on Taiwan in 1662, aged just 38, raises questions. What is next for the Zheng forces? What's next for the Ming holdouts on Taiwan? Hmm. So let's look at those last months of Kashinga's life on Taiwan, because he really went out in, well, not not with style, but with drama. He, he hmm. learned 
He learned that his eldest son, his designated successor, Zhen Jing, who is in Xiamen, right, over on the other side of the strait in China, Xiamen, the Zheng base on the mainland. So Kashinga learns that his son had misbehaved. Um, he had had, let's put it this way, intimate relations with the wet nurse of his brother. <clears throat> so Daddy Kashinga is outraged, more than outraged. He's furious. And Kashinga is not a guy you want to get angry. This incident was perhaps not that bad on its own, but it's a, a case of the last straw. Kushinga had suffered years of frustration, seen his designated heir being unfit to rule. His son, who's just 19 years old, uh, he'd been given a traditional conservative education, the Confucian classics, but he was a spoiled oldest son and uh, he was no Confucian gentleman. He led a life of vice and indulgence. So we're talking wine, women, and song, yeah? Wine, women, and sing-song boys. Um, okay, meaning? I read, I read an academic book uh, which mentioned uh, accounts. Uh, might have been some palace gossip, some slander, but that uh, Kashinga's son had flings with sing-song boys, hanging out with actors, I guess, and he took, I quote, a fancy toward mature women. Okay, so he liked um, certain male actors and certain elder uh, women. No judgment here, okay, but anyway, uh, so where were we? Uh, with an angry Koshinga who dispatches orders to commanders in Xiamen, execute his son, cut his throat, behead the wet nurse and two illegitimate children, and the boy's mother, which is, yeah, Koshinga's wife. She should have done a better job raising her son. Wow. Tough orders, and the commanders did not comply. They killed the wet nurse, a couple of children, and sent their heads to Taiwan, as instructed. So they're thinking that maybe, you know, Kushinga, he might have cooled off in the meantime, and he might even be glad that his orders weren't completely obeyed. You know, this is pretty common back in the day. The king would say something. And then later when they didn't do it, the king would say, oh, you were wise for not actually doing that. Yeah, yeah. So they're thinking we might even get rewarded mm -hmm. for our wisdom and bravery. But no, Koshinga is still chewing the furniture. And just to make it doubly clear, he sends another envoy, but this time carrying his personal sword, his son, has to be put to death. So the commanders and shaman are forced to make a difficult decision. Openly defy Kashinga or kill his son. So reluctantly, they made their choice and killed the envoy. The envoy. <laughs> they killed the envoy and cut ties with Formosa. Uh, no ships to take supplies, men or news there. I guess they figured that was their safest bet. Back on Taiwan, Kashinga is having anger issues with the Spanish in the Philippines. He wrote a letter to the governor general demanding his submission as a vassal. Kashinga explained that enlightened princes chosen by heaven should be recognized with tribute by foreign nations. Ah, yes. And Kashinga is obviously an enlightened prince chosen by heaven. Yep. And uh, that tribute needs to be coming in every year or the Spanish will be crushed. The letter was delivered in May 1662. Some Chinese in Manila thought that an invasion was about to kick off and they rose up against the Spanish rulers. Oops, a bit premature and 
things didn't work out well for them. The governor sent a reply to Koshinga telling him to go pound sand, and he sent tribute that was in the form of deported Chinese. <laughs> okay. So Koshinga's、uh, response to this reply from the governor of the Philippines, telling him to go whatever, was to order a full-scale attack on the Philippines, and preparations for war began. But it was just the following month that he fell sick, and after a week of what the historical accounts call severe bouts of delirium and insanity, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun, he died. There would be no invasion of the Philippines. Importantly, though, before his death, he had agreed to reverse his earlier decision against his eldest son. So Zheng Jing was to succeed him as leader. Lucky kid. Zheng Jing's brush with mortality, along with his father's death and his ascent to leadership, slapped some sense into the young man. He really cleaned up his act. He would try to be a good leader, and this he did.、Uh, he, he was a different man. In 1662, Zheng Jing is in Xiamen on the Fujian coast, which is still the Zheng trading hub. He stayed there until 1664, when the Qing launched major attacks against Xiamen and other coastal bases. Many Zheng followers chose to stay in China and surrender—a better option, they thought, than heading to Taiwan, because who knows for how long they would be there. And it's worth remembering that the majority of Kashinga's followers, both high and lowly, Had actually opposed the idea of going to Taiwan. They they saw it as a barbarous land far away from their homes. Yeah, they really、uh, were strongly opposed to going there. But anyway, April 1664, Koshinga's son fled to Taiwan. With him go、uh, a small elite group of scholars, gentry, Ming imperial descendants, and generals. Well, yeah, more chiefs than Indians. And when you say more chiefs than Indians, you mean? Well, yeah, a, a very top-heavy structure,、uh, more leaders than soldiers. Well, no, not literally, but there were perhaps four thousand men. Not that many, right?、Uh, and they're joining that original force, what twenty thousand plus, which、uh, Koshinga had taken over. But the next decade on Taiwan saw a remarkable development. It was more than just a base, more than just a trading settlement. It started to take on the shapings of a, a nation. There was a lot of commercial and agricultural development. Troops were put to work opening new land, and yeah, the amount of farmland greatly increased. So we're talking about swords into plowshares. Well, okay, not exactly. They kept their swords handy, but、uh, we do see a real turning away from China at this time, and also away from the idea of fighting the the Manchus or the Qing, right? The the invaders who had taken over from the、mm -hmm. Ming Dynasty. Actually, Zheng Jing had signaled this pretty early on. It was like 1664, the year he retreated to Taiwan, by changing Taiwan's official title from Dongdu Mingjing or Ming Eastern Capital to Dongning, which could be translated as Eastern Pacification. Okay,、uh, dropping the Ming、uh, and capital from the title—pretty big steps for、uh, the would-be Ming loyalists. Not surprisingly, some of the loyalist elites,、uh, men of royal bloodlines and、uh, the literati, they're not happy with this. Yeah, it makes sense, and also partially, it's a generational divide. The young had less attachment to the Ming. And they were more willing to accept that the Manchu, the Qing, they'd won China. Beijing had fallen back in 1644, so that's a generation ago. Not living memory for many. 
And it wasn't a memory for uh, Kashinga's son either. He was like two years old when that happened. And it makes sense to settle down in Tainan, continue trading with Japan, the Ryukyus or, or what we call Okinawa today, and Southeast Asia. There was a shift towards trade with maritime Asia, and Southeast Asia was becoming more important. As Kashinga's son rebuilt Taiwan, he tried to convince his followers that Taiwan was their new permanent home. Yes, it's wild, but we're civilizing it day by day. We're changing it from jungle and wild tribes into farms and settlements, proper houses. We're building Chinese civilization, temples, schools, civil service examinations. They were pretty much ready to ditch the whole retake the mainland line and to reach some sort of settlement with the Qing. And in the late 1660s, there were negotiations with the Qing court. Jiang, Kashinga's son, stressed that Taiwan did not belong to the Middle Kingdom and they would like friendly relations. Basically, they, they'd be willing to accept a, a tributary vassal position, you know, almost the same style that Korea had back then. Yeah, this is the reign of Emperor Kangxi. And his compromise was that Taiwan could be a Jiang feudatory. Right. Okay. So that word feudatory. It means basically like a tributary vassal, but you're inside the empire rather than being outside of it. These were Chinese people on Formosa, not foreigners like the Koreans. So a bit of a different situation. But still, there's been compromise on both sides. So there's room for more bargaining. Yes, but there was a sticking point. It wasn't a matter of a name change or even a demand like, uh, send us your daughters. Uh, Eric, I think you know what the insurmountable point was. <laughs> I do indeed. Yes, Kangxi, the emperor, demanded that the Chinese on Taiwan shave their heads in the Manchu fashion. The style is called the Q. The front and the sides of the head are shaved and the rest of the hair is is braided into this long braid that hangs down in the back. And oh, I've, I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's really ugly. One of history's worst looks. Absolutely agree. The Manchus, uh, though, they weren't trying to persuade anybody that it was a good look. They weren't like, you know, this is pretty fashionable. <laughs> their, their policy was simple. Lose your hair or lose your head. Not shaving your hair in that Q style was treason and thus punishable by death. And because of this key point of this hairstyle, negotiation talks between Beijing and the kingdom of Dongning broke down in 1669. I think uh, Kangxi, uh, the emperor Kangxi, remained hopeful because he, uh, he held back from attacking Taiwan. So life goes on. Zhen Jing, Kashinga's son, he expands the settlements on Taiwan, and he expands his trading empire. They're still trading with the mainland, which is a valuable source of silk and porcelain in particular, but it required generous bribes to Qing commanders in charge of the coastline. The trade focus is shifting in their minds to Southeast Asia. Yes, though they got a bit ambitious on that front. In 1670, the young guns on Taiwan were pushing for an invasion of the Philippines. Then, of course, under the control of the Spanish. 
<laughs> and let's stop and consider that for a moment, okay? It's 1670. They've not even been a decade on Taiwan since they retreated from the mainland. And they're planning to take on the Spanish, the greatest imperial European power of the time. It's not an idea that I think would have gone down all that well with the older Zheng leadership. No, they're still looking back across the strait and hoping to restore the Ming. Yeah, but the proponents of invading the Spanish Philippines did have some reasonable arguments, yeah? Multiple arguments, both moral and practical. Okay, I know the practical ones, but moral? Spreading Confucian civilization to barbarian lands, and uh, especially the need to protect the Chinese in Manila. There was a large Chinese population there, mostly their fellow Fujianese. They needed protecting from tyranny, discrimination, and they needed avenging. Avenging the periodic slaughter brought on by fears of Chinese invasion or uprising. And to be fair, they weren't imaginary fears. The Chinese in and around Manila would have been and were allies of Zhenjing, Kashinga's son. Re recall when Kashinga arrived in Taiwan in 1661, all those mm -hmm. tens of thousands of Chinese farmers and workers who the Dutch had brought over, they, they welcomed him. They sided with Kashinga. They'd been infiltrated already by his spies. They knew the invasion was coming. And when he came, they switched sides. So I guess the Philippine authorities were worrying it would be a repeat of the same thing. Yeah, likewise, the Chinese in Manila uh, were weak in their, um, what's the word, allegiance, um, their loyalty to the Spanish. They even looked to Taiwan for legal matters, a bit like Westerners in treaty port China centuries later. These Chinese in Manila sometimes insisted on handling legal disputes with uh, Chinese law. And uh, the Spanish let them do this uh, sometimes. There's a case of leaders in Taiwan demanding and getting the Spanish uh, governor general to hand over to Chinese extradition of, I quote, two headmen who were incarcerated for sodomy and sentenced to burn at the stake. Burn at the stake. Flashback to the Spanish Inquisition. Ooh. Anyway, back in Taiwan, Jing starts preparing for a covert attack on the Philippines. They're making weapons, buying them from where they can, including the East India Company from England. They had a small trading post, uh, the English did, in Anping, in Tainan at this time. Soon a force was assembled, more than 100 junks, maybe 12,000 soldiers, and they were set to attack Manila in early 1671. 12,000 soldiers, that's quite a force. So they actually had a chance of success. That's what the English thought. The Spanish garrison was surprisingly weak, uh, under a thousand men, so not even as strong as Fort Zealandia was. And the defenses were a bit run down. So yeah, it was possible. Wow. It's a it's such a big what if history thing. Like um, I can imagine a, a maritime Chinese state centered on Taiwan and the Philippine island of Luzon, you know, working together as a, as a little mini empire. But of course, that scenario never got a chance to play out before the force had a chance to depart. Opposition to the plan derailed everything. Yes. In an excellent book called Conflict and Commerce in Maritime East Asia, Author Xing Hang says, when Jing received intelligence that some of his soldiers planned to commandeer his vessel at sea and deliver him into the hands of the Qing, 
he had no choice but to delay the expedition. These rumors were likely started by the so-called restorationists. Those were the people who uh, their main ambition was restoring the Ming dynasty. So they had a, a reason to try to mess up this whole plan. Jing didn't give up on the invasion. He just postponed it for a year. So this will be 1672, early on, just after the Lunar New Year. But the conservative faction, these restorationists, they raised strong opposition once more. And it's not like they don't have valid points. Um, going to the Philippines is a distraction from their mission to the return of China. It also distracts from building up Taiwan and making it more secure. The Philippines is not that great a prize in terms of local riches. Manila is a trading hub, the terminal of the Spanish so-called Silver Way. The Spanish send their silver over from the Americas, and this is part of that East Asian economy. And so if you think about it, why disrupt what's working pretty good right now? So, hmm. John, this offensive is supposed to have been secret, right, and have the element of surprise. But from what you're saying, it doesn't sound like it was very airtight as a secret goes. Exactly. Uh, I'm not sure how long it took, but yes, the Spanish learned of the invasion plans and uh, they strengthened their defenses. And in late uh, 1672, uh, the governor general of the Philippines sent an envoy to Taiwan for a friendly neighborhood visit and to uh, dissuade any southward ambitions. However, Zhen Jing, Cushing's son, is still determined to have Manila. And there's a very decent chance, I think, that he might have gotten his way. But the fates of history had other ideas. Events in China intervened. In 1673, we have the Rebellion of the Three Feudatories. The Rebellion of the Three Feudatories. These feudatories were large, semi-independent states submitting to the Qing, but not directly ruled by them. There were three of them, in the southwest, in Fujian, and in Guangdong. Emperor Kangxi wanted to abolish their autonomy, and they weren't real happy about that, so they rose up. And they very quickly made rapid gains. Yes, the Zheng forces on Taiwan joined the rebellion. And what a turning point for Taiwan. This rebellion would ultimately fail and bring Taiwan under Qing rule. Yes, and a, a turning point for the Philippines too. Yeah, because this rebellion changed uh, everything. It gave the restorationists uh, a winning argument. Didn't make sense to attack Manila now. No, especially with the rebels inviting them, right? They're over in China saying, come, help us restore the Ming. Pretty hard to say no to that. The old guard pretty much just won the argument, and they pressured Zheng to give up the Philippine ambition and to go fight the, the Qing. So Zheng turned his ships and his troops westward, and the son of the great Kashinga returned to Xiamen. In the ensuing years, we see countless battles and Zheng's forces occupying much of Fujian and Guangdong provinces, but the tides of war would change. The rebellion of the three feudatories, which had lasted seven years, came to an end in 1681. Qing forces took the final rebel bastion of Kunming that year, but things ended a, a year earlier in Xiamen. Yeah, Jing fled in March of 1680 with several thousand troops. Two days after he left, Xiamen surrendered to the Qing. He was a broken man. He retreated from 
worldly ambitions, uh, built a pleasure garden on the outskirts of Tainan, and I quote, wild away his days, intoxicated with wine and women. And later in March of 1681, Zheng Jing would die there from, I quote again, alcohol overdose and sexual exhaustion at the age of 39. He must have really been burning the candle at both ends to uh, be able to <laughs> die of exhaustion <laughs> at 39. I yo. So yeah. while Kashinga's son is ruining his health with um, possibly uh, young actors and elderly women, who's running yeah. the government? Well, in 1679, Zhen Jing had named his eldest son, who at that time was still a teenager, as his heir. And he had been prepared for the position while his father was over on the mainland. So when Jing returns in defeat, he hands his seals of authority over to his son so the boy can start doing things in his name. And the Zheng regime, the administration was still relatively sound. The regional trading empire was hurt, but not mortally so. They felt secure in Taiwan. So when it came to talks with the Qing, they weren't willing to concede much, like giving up claims to the mainland and agreeing to not attack the coast. If they had done so, the Qing said they would uh, leave them alone. Uh, how much the Qing promises uh, are worth is debatable, of course. But anyway, yeah, talks got nowhere. And um, thus, a military campaign against Taiwan was considered the only uh, solution. Remarkably, some of the Zheng leaders are still keen on foreign adventures at this point. It's like, okay, well, that retake the mainland thing didn't work out real well. Um, what was that other plan we had? Oh, yeah, they'll invade the Philippines, right? Yeah, that's the one. Let, let's go back to that. Yeah. In the middle of 1681, some generals wanted to dust off that old plan. Taiwan was suffering from food shortages, so it was the agricultural resources of uh, Luzon which perhaps appealed most. But Taiwan was in chaos with rebellions and a coup. The last few years see a ton of dramatic intrigue, which is worth a Formosa Files episode all of its own. And again, there is no invasion of the Philippines. But it's a hard plan to kill, even after the crushing naval defeat uh, at Penghu in 1683, which brought the surrender, there was talk of a military retreat to the Philippines where they could establish a new base. <laughs> but, you know, enough is enough. Most leaders thought the Zheng cause was lost, and there was really only one choice, surrender. Their energies would be best spent on getting the best terms possible from the Qing. And we will look at those last few years in detail in a future episode. But uh, John, you customarily have some last thoughts here. Uh, you got any last thoughts on um, Kashinga's son and this kingdom of Dongning? Yes, there's a tendency to see the Qing seizure of Taiwan as coming from relentless Qing military pressure. But when you look closer, there were multiple chances to cut a deal before the rebellion of the three feudatories, during it, and even after the second retreat to Taiwan. And Pershing's son himself, he certainly deserves to be better known. 
he had a very eventful life. In his first decade in Taiwan, he's rebuilding the country, he's expanding trading networks into Southeast Asia, and all that was quite successful. Who knows, his Manila ambitions might have even played out and changed the picture of history. As I said earlier, I can actually picture a maritime nation centered on Taiwan-Luzon combination little mini empire. Yeah, that Manila invasion uh, that never happened is interesting as a what if, but I also find the Kingdom of Dongning fascinating for its 20th century parallels. Yeah, uh, the retreat of the nationalists here in 1949. Yes, those tensions between localization and hanging on to Chinese culture and that hope to return and take back China militarily. If we did a little thought experiment here, the Zheng tried to reconquer China 10 years after fleeing, a dozen years after first coming to Taiwan. Apply that to Chiang Kai-shek's retreat, let's say 1959, 1960. Yes, China is being devastated by the Great Leap Forward. The Soviet-China split has just occurred, left China without its main ally. And China is developing nuclear weapons, but is a few years away from getting them. An adventurer might have been tempted to uh, launch an invasion of the mainland, but it would have caused a lot of suffering for the people uh, of Fujian and elsewhere and likely would have ended in disaster. Yeah, I think so too. So think twice before launching foreign invasions. That uh, useful expert advice was brought to you by Formosa Files and is also a good place to sign off. Thanks for listening. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. 